0: So we're having a little bit of technical difficulty with our Zoom, and we lost power temporarily. So we hope all of those that were on um, either stayed on or rejoined us at this time. But uh, in honor of Black History Month, I bought these really nice looking hoodies, and they are... um, they recount certain historical moments in in black history. And so this one, it talks about 1619 when slavery was brought to North America, 1831, the abolitionist movement and the Underground Railroad in 1865, the abolition of slavery. But we do know from the book Barracoon by Zora that even though slavery was abolished, there were still people who were bringing slaves to these United States during that time. So that's an interesting book if you wanted to find some reading on that. In 1909, the founding of the NAACP, and then 1920, the Harlem Renaissance, 1955, the Montgomery Boycott, 1963, the March on Washington, 1966, the Black Power Movement, and then 1995, the Million Man March. So that's all of the things that, and I bought like three different ones. So for Black History Month, I'll be wearing them. Um, But there's a lot of questions and certainly a lot of uh, fear and trepidation as I take on presenting Howard Thurman's lectures during Black History Month. and so have you first of all let me back up and ask how many of you actually well I don't know if I want to put you on the spot to see if you read the newsletter because the newsletter actually went into details why I'm doing this this month as opposed to preaching my sermons I'm going to present his lectures and so it's it's one of those persons in history that you know you just say I wish I had met Howard Thurman. I wish I could have just sat in on some of his lectures or his sermons and um, it was just an amazing person. And the more I read about him, the more I want to learn about him. I love his cadence. I love the content of his messages. And so for me to present Howard Thurman's messages, it's kind of scary because you might like him more than you like me. (laughs) Or you might have this high expectation of how my sermon should be the next time I preach. So, But I love Howard Thurman and his, his insights into just, into just human life and human nature is just amazing. So in essence, what I'm trying to do is encourage you to find some of his readings. You may even find these lectures online. They're public domain. And you can find them and, um, and read them on your own and see what insights you get from them. Today, I wanna focus on Micah. Next week, I wanna look at Amos, I believe. And then the third lecture I wanna look at is Hosea, three of the prophets that he lectures on. And he talks about, and this is in the 1950s. And it's interesting as you look and listen to his lectures that some of what he says i want you to just nod if some of what he says applies to us today as i'm presenting the lectures to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with god in the hose in micah is the lecture on the prophet by howard thurman thurman invokes jesus who teaches that mercy is more important than justice mercy and kindness is an act that cannot be paid back and in fact Mercy and justice are acts that multiply as they're given out. Thurman says that what it means to do justly is really releasing people from the prison in the way we deal with them. And lastly, Thurman describes true humility as a clear-eyed assessment of oneself, both weaknesses and our strengths. Together, justice, mercy, and humility form what howard thurman call the meaning of religion and the meaning of the good life the lecture series has to do with the messages on the prophets as it pertains to israel so let us pray let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight O god our strength and our redeemer amen But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go into the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us his ways and we'll walk in his path for the law of God is set forth on Zion and the word of the Lord for Jerusalem. But they shall sit every man under the vine and under the fig tree and none shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. These are Howard Thurman's words, every man under the vine and under the fig tree is a passage from the history quoted by George Washington on the occasion of his inauguration as the president of the United States. A rabbi at a Jewish synagogue sent a letter to the president congratulating him on this country because they had finally come to this rather difficult time to establish what seemed to them to be a time of democracy, this experiment that we call democracy. Washington answered the Jewish synagogue rabbi and he expressed his deep appreciation for the significance of the moment in history. And Washington, George Washington said this, it is my wish that the future of America will be of such that every man shall sit under his vine tree, under the fig tree and none shall have fear in his heart. Howard Thurman asked the question, what would he say today? Could he quote that today? But this is not the point, he says. Now there's another passage that I'd like to read and that's the passage that Lisa read from Micah 6 verses one through six. I won't repeat the passage for you, but the fit translation of this passage reads as such. How shall I enter the eternal presence and bow before God of heaven? Shall I come to God with sacrifices, with the yearning of calves to offer? With the eternal care for rams in thousands of oil-flowing mirrored streams? Shall I offer my firstborn? Shall I offer my child for my sin, the fruit of my body for the guilt of my soul? Oh man, the eternal has told you what is good. What does the eternal ask for you but to be just and kind and live in quiet relationship with God? The prophet Micah was a younger contemporary of Isaiah, and Micah was a bit like Amos because he was a country boy. Isaiah, of course, was a city-bred. And if you hear or if you bear that in mind as you read through the prophets, much light can be thrown on the insights which they give, because the attitude and the point of view of a city dweller is different from the attitude and the point of view of a non-city dweller. A city dweller has to uh, struggle very hard for their individual survival. They're not cushioned by the group awareness that surrounds a person who lives in a simpler, more pastoral environment. And therefore, the city dweller have to be very much more self-conscious. And if the city dweller is more self-conscious than the rural dweller, this is generally true, then it means that the city dweller is more conscious of any impositions upon them. If they are conscious of themselves, they are therefore more conscious of everything that happens to them. So that always is this self-consciousness on the part of the city dweller that again and again is responsible for this emphasis in the prophets as we read them in the scripture. This emphasis in the prophets on social justice, this emphasis on social inequality, as contrasted with the emphasis on a more rural-minded prophet at another level of concern. Now, let me pause here and say that everything that I just said just a few moments ago, these are the words of Howard Thurman. But he would have taken an additional seven minutes to say those words his cadence is so slow and methodical that you're almost soaking in the words as he is speaking. But I I haven't acquired that as yet. I'm from Jamaica and we just, we run through. (laughs) Now the prophet Micah believed that people under stress and strain when things are not going well they're willing to make any kind of dramatic gesture to appease the gods. So Micah says in this passage, wherewith shall I come before God? God is disturbed about me. God is not kind of disposed because I have not been just. I have not been, and he lists many things. So. Can I placate God? Can I appeal to God with offerings, even 10,000 rivers of oil? Or maybe I should sacrifice my own child. Would that satisfy God? It suggests something very interesting that I just wanna look at for a second, and that is, For the most part, human beings then and now have grown very much in the quality of their religious experience. It's very hard to get beyond the stage of superstition, even in religion. Just straightforward superstition. Do you believe that? When your times are out of joint, when things aren't going right with you. When event after event seems to disintegrate instead of holding together where you're concerned. When everything you touch, writers, turns into ashes. When all of the tidings that float in your direction are bad tidings. Is it your temptation to try to placate God, to force and take control of God? Isn't that true? You find yourself sometimes even even reading, (laughs) just reading the Bible, and even learning how to pray. And some of you even come to church. superstitions, is what Micah is talking about. Now, that's that's a superficial way to look at this, of course. And I do not mean to be ungracious. It suggests, however, that there is a recognition when we turn in times of distress to something that is more stabilizing than anything that we know. There's a recognition that life is not completely without morality. And if we can, with the thing that we relate to what happens in terms of our private life, if we can just grab a hold of that superstition and take control of it, maybe we can change how things will turn out. And it has taken the human race hundreds and thousands of years to move beyond that check and balance attitude, beyond the attitude of reward and punishment. And even Micah isn't quite beyond that, you see, for he insists,
1: what does God require but to do justly? And what is justice? But you see, it's still
0: in the category you see in the initial statement of reward and punishment. It's this balance. One of the earlier American social philosophers, a man who first wrote in the field of sociology in America gave a definition for justice that has remained a part of the law of sociology if not Its insight for a long time. And the definition is this justice is the artificial equalization of unequals. Justice is the artificial equalization of unequals. Now, this is me speaking, not Thurman. (laughs) That was Thurman. This is me. I don't remember all I learned from my philosophy class at Loyola University. But I do remember this one book. In fact, I still have a copy of the book at my home, Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. And Aristotle argues for the role of money injustice or justice as economics. And here Thurman says justice is the artificial equalization of unequals, artificial equalization, where there is an equity, inequity, It is built up so that it balances something over here. Where there's inequity here, it's built up so it balances it over here.
1: Where there's inequality that moves up this way, it's shaved down
0: so that the gap is filled. Now, the concept has had a very interesting development for at one time in all human relations, as far as Jehovah was concerned, there was the instance
1: on the part of the prophet that God, that Jehovah permitted, blessed, and even endorsed
0: an attitude which says, if I am injured by someone, then I am at liberty to injure my injurer to the limit of my strength and my ability and their endurance. And for hundreds of years, that was it's if I am injured by someone, I have the right to injure the person who has injured me. If you injured me, then I could pay you back. <laughs> as long as I have the will, and as long as I have the strength, and as long as you survived. And then there was this shift There was a growth, a whole process, and we see it emerging in some of the codes. Sometimes that's called the lex talionis. They call it the eye
1: for the eye, the tooth for the tooth doctrine. And if you put
0: my eye out or if I put your eye out, then you can put my eye out cuz if you put mine out first i can't see nothing to hurt you <laughs> but if i put your eye out or if you put my eye out then we can go back and we both be blind <laughs> you see that's is a great advance from this one you see that if you put one person's eye out you can do the same thing to the other person as long as you have the strength and the ability but the lex talionis moves up a step it actually moves up a great step a long stride it represents a whole growth of maturity of humanity and human spirit a deepening of awareness of the meaning of life in terms of that extends beyond the event in which human beings are involved so An eternal note begins to appear in human relationship. I will do to
1: you what precisely you have done to me. Now the third step is
0: a step that appears in the second part of what Micah has to say, and that is to love mercy. And we find this expressed in the Sermon on the Mount because all of this review of the evolution of the doctrine of justice and human relationship appears in the Sermon on the Mount in the same manner that I can, I am describing it here. Jesus insists, you see, that mercy is more important than justice mercy is more important than justice and micah says that israel should love mercy
1: as if it loves mercy then it will do justice or is mercy something that is in another
0: category completely from justice Under what conditions do you regard yourself as acting merciful towards someone else? Under what conditions do you regard yourself acting merciful towards someone? Let's think about it. In your experience, when you have done a merciful deed, what kind of deed is it? Is it one in which you could have
1: been destructive, but you chose not to be, but you weren't destructive? And then you turn around and congratulate yourself
0: because of your self-control? Is that being merciful? When you are a merciful person, what happens to the person who is on the receiving end of your mercy? Maybe that's the way we should look at it. Let's think about it now. What what kind of test as seen through the eyes of the person who experiences your mercy?
1: Does it inspire ill will and contempt in that person?
0: This is me talking. The unhoused person you and I go out and buy a tent for to keep them covered. Does it inspire ill will in that person? Does it make them feel as if it would be very much better if you had been
1: unmerciful? Because then at least they would have had their self-respect. Is that what it means to be merciful? Is there a difference between
0: being merciful and being kind?
1: Or are they one and the same thing? What about it? When you are kind, what are you? Is there ever an element of obligation in your
0: kindness? Can you be kind to someone because you are under some obligation to be kind to them? Or is there in kindness always the element that is stripped of all of its
1: obligations? What about it? What about it? So then when I'm kind, is it as when I'm merciful? Is it that I confer upon the other person
0: gratuitously without obligation, this gracious act? Don't
1: tell anybody.
0: I was driving in my Jeep the other day and this person pulls up to me and said,
1: Spider-Man.
0: I said, shh, (laughs) you met him (laughs) and he's back. (laughs) <laughs> does kindness, does mercy mean dealing with an
1: individual as if they were yourself?
0: Or is that too narrow of an interpretation? Does kindness mean dealing with people as if they were more than yourself? Or is kindness surrounding your relationship with little or big deeds that are gracious and obligation free and responsibility free. So when I do this act of kindness, not only is it true that I do not
1: bind the recipient of the kindness, but I release them from ever owing me anything.
0: Is that what we mean by it? One subtle thing about mercy and about kindness is that when someone has been kind to you, one thing is always true. You can't
1: ever pay them back. You can't repay the act of kindness. Have you ever tried? Because you see, you can't establish any basis of measurement. This is me talking here. The scripture says, What shall I
0: render unto God for all of God's blessings unto me? Have you ever thought about that? How am I going to pay Jesus back for dying on a cross? What am I going to (laughs) do? Well, I got, I, I got the American Express black card. <laughs> will that work? <laughs> well, well, I, you can have my fourth child, even though I only have three. <laughs> will that work?
1: What will I render to God for all that God has given to me? The Same thing is true when we talk about kindness. When someone is kind
0: to me, how in the world am I going to pay them back? Have you ever tried?
1: How, how did you establish a measurement for repayment? When someone has been kind to you, back to Thurman, you can't repay it.
0: And this is why there's something that has the element of the eternal about kindness, kindness.
1: Me talking, try it this week. Try being kind to someone this week. Your neighbor, your coworker,
0: your child, your children, your your partner, your spouse, your friend. There is this eternal element about kindness. For invariably, at long last, the kind act of which I have been a recipient, this is powerful, the kind act of
1: which I have been a recipient multiplies itself inside of me. I think that's where we got the concept, pay it forward.
0: because someone has touched me so deeply, I am now positioned where I am ready to touch someone else's life. It multiplies itself inside of my spirit and expresses itself in ways that way outnumber anything that I could even imagine. So the prophet Micah says, if you wanna be pleasing to God, don't waste your time with burnt offerings. If you want to be pleasing to God, don't waste your time making sacrifices on rivers of oil. If you want to be pleasing to God, don't bow down the before Jehovah and say all of these things. He said, there's only one thing that you and I need
1: to do if we want to be pleasing to God. to deal with our fellow human being justly.
0: And to be sure, there is a clear understanding to what Micah meant by this kind of justice. He said, and to do justly as people who love mercy
1: and people who are kind. And when we are kind, what we do is we go around releasing people from
0: the prison in the way we deal with them.
1: You don't have to pay me back because I'm kind. I'm releasing you from that.
0: And then finally, Micah says to walk humbly before God. Humbly with God, just, just one word about that. I know, how do you walk humbly before God?
1: How do you do that? Walk, how do you walk humbly before anybody? <laughs> Is it by measuring yourself by the other person?
0: Is that how you walk humbly? Do we walk humbly before each other by pretending that we're we're worse than we really are? Is is that how we walk humbly? And here Dr. Thurman tells a story. It's a funny story of when he was a little boy and he was giving a speech and it's funny when you listen to the lecture he says i was giving a speech at a cantata and he said oh you don't give speeches at a cantata <laughs> he said but i was giving a speech and this this wonderful lady older a grandma like lady comes up to me and she says oh you are so amazing you are wonderful you are a gifted speaker and he turns to her and he says oh you can't say that about me but his his grandmother was behind watching this exchange between he and this elderly woman. And then his grandmother, after the exchange ended, his grandmother pulled him aside and he said, let me tell you something, Howard. Before this life is over, you're going to have enough people saying bad things about you (laughs) that whenever anyone says something good about you, you better accept it and stop acting like you don't like it. (laughs) Is that what it means to be humble? Is that what's meant by humility? Always selling oneself at the discount in order to feel less than somebody else? Do I have to shrink who I am to make you feel better about who you are? Is that humility?
1: Or is that arrogance? Is that pride? Is that conceit? But is humility understanding who I am and what I am.
0: Is humility understanding whatever gifts it is you bring to the table? Is humility coming to grips with who I am and accepting that? My dear friend is in the room right now and I'm gonna put him on blast because I told him the other day, I said, James, and he spoke for us. I said, James, I wanna thank you for helping me get to a place in my life to accept who I am.
1: I've known James for 40 years, coming to grips with who I am, what I am, and what I'm capable of doing,
0: a clear-eye appraisal of myself, and in light of the dignity of my own sense of being, I walk with God.
1: Step. step
0: and God walks with me. This is with my weaknesses. God walks with me. This is with my inability. God walks with me. This is with my shortcomings. God walks with me. This is with my strength. God walks with me. With my abilities and liabilities. God walks with me. This
1: is me being human. And it is that God that walks with me, that salutes me when I
0: accept who I am. The God that walks with me. What does God require then? O son of man, the King James Version, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And that, perhaps, is the meaning of religion. It's certainly the meaning of the good life. Dr. Howard Thurman on Micah. Let's pray. God, you've given us so I mean in this presentation, there's so much that we can grab a hold of and and think about and unpack. And so help us to retain some of it so that we can just begin to unpack it throughout this week. Thank you for Dr. Howard Thurman and the insights that he brings to Scripture and to life.
1: In Jesus' name, amen.